gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody else, thank you for tuning into the price of entry this week. My name is Brendan Kavanagh. I'm your host, and this is episode 33, lucky 33 this week. And I have the absolute privilege to have Nathan Robinson, which I think that's the first time I've actually said your name <laughs> like that. Nathan Robinson. My full name. Your full name. I'm going to add Mark's my middle name if you need to make it really professional. Okay. So today I have the very professional Nathan Mark Robinson on the podcast. He's a very serious fellow. I don't know him too well. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes. No, definitely. I'm Robbo, as he's more colloquially. Now, nah, in my head just now, here's a little insight into Brendan's brain. I've gone, should I risk it and try and say colloquially? Colloquially? Colloquially. Should I try and run it in a sentence and hope to get it out right? And it didn't happen. So anyway, to that horror start of a podcast, mate, how you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, really good. Good to join you. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Now, you've only just recently changed roles recently. What is it that you do right now? Because it's not a new field for you, but it's a new Uh, company that you're doing the same thing within, correct? Yeah, correct. I've been there for, oh, gee, just a tick over three months now. So um, it feels like a lot longer, um, but yeah, three months. So I'm, I'm now at Dulux Group. Um, so I'm sure a lot of the people out there, especially anyone in Australia, would be pretty familiar with um, Dulux, the, the paint company. Um, do they the still Dulux. have that shaggy dog, the yes. Dulux dog? Yeah, they do. And I haven't seen them yet, but apparently they bring them into the office occasionally. I think there's like seven of them. Um, I was about to say, is it the original? Like, because I feel like those ads have been around yeah. since I was a kid. Not, I don't know if it's the original, but um, yeah, they definitely bring them into the office sometimes and everyone gets to have a pat. So I'm looking forward to that day. That'll be cool. That's cool. That's cool. Mm. So, and so your yeah, there is. Uh, so I'm a sales training manager. Um, so really focusing on the capability space or learning and development space, but for salespeople in particular and ensuring that their sales skills are. Um, Best of the nice, nice. And I'd love to unpack that a bit today. So here's a bit of heads up about what we're going to be chatting about today, everybody right. listening. Now, Nathan and I were just talking earlier because we have known each other for a very long time, even grew up in the same fun suburb called Frankston, a.k.a. Frankganistan. And we could just talk about Frankston alone for a whole Frankie's a Frankie's its own season of a podcast, I think. Well, how do you well. explain Frankston to someone that's never been there? Well, it's funny because even just yesterday, um, Jess was saying that someone from her work's daughters moved down to Frankston and they came down to visit and said, oh, it's absolutely lovely down here. And and it's a little bit like that because I think it's one of those places where the reputation really precedes it um, and it's not until you actually come down and experience it and live down here or, or you know, go out down here and you really go, wow, this is a, a beautiful spot. I can't believe that. You know, um, it's the end of the train line. I can't believe that there's drug problems. I can't believe that there's all these things that have gone on for years and people have talked about for years and given Frank's a hard time for. Um, it's, yeah, it's really not like that anymore, but it's certainly had a bad rep growing up. Mm. I've got a theory on that, actually, because you live in Frankston, so you, you can probably confirm or deny. I reckon there's almost a, a pride to the mythology that is Frankston because um, it makes you look a little bit more hardcore than you really are. And Mate, I'm so I'm so hardcore. That's why I get called Nate Dog because <laughs> I'm just a gangster. And for those listening, he does. Yeah, <laughs> you, should, also, you should see the tat. I've covered it up tonight, but I've got a, a tat across my chest. No um, regrets. Yeah, no regrets. Or yeah. Thug Life, or is it both? Oh, both. Thug Life, on, thug life on the backwards. Back. Yeah, on yeah. the back. Yeah, cool, 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 cool. But I've got a second theory. I reckon there's almost a bit of a conspiracy within fellow Franks tonight where you want to keep proliferating that uh, mythology and that view of Frankston because it keeps everybody out. Heck yes. And just keeps it to yourselves. Yeah, oh, too many people are finding out about it. Yeah. We, the, the suburb we live in, we bought a house here, um, well, only five or six years ago, and it was like a, a little family suburb, probably not really well known um, in Frankston, just a bit, so a little bit out to the side, a little bit, and just just a nice enough area. Um, and the things exploded. People were moving in and flattening houses and doing up houses and that place doubled in value in five years. So just like just crazy stuff where all of a sudden people find out, like, no, 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 go away. You don't, you don't want this. 
in five years. Yeah, yeah, so remember crazy. years ago, the rule of thumb used to be, oh, if your house can double in 10 years, you're doing well. That's a good thing to aim for. Yeah, five yeah. years. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, on the list of other topics that we were contemplating talking about, because they are many, is the hidden secret that is eating chicken Kievs with rice <laughs> and garlic bread and a bottle of wine and the UFC, which, full disclosure, Nathan and I were housemates for a couple of years. And uh, that was a staple that would happen many times as young bachelors. I don't remember the night. I can't remember if it was Monday nights um, when it used to be 1HD. 1HD was a channel back in the day, the sport channel. And they used to put some UFC on or sometimes some NBA on on one of the nights of the week. I can't even remember what night. And you and I would cook up chicken Kievs out of a box. It was great. Boil up (laughs) rice. Yep. Um. Garlic bread. Get a garlic bread and put it in the oven. So it was pretty much Carb Fest 3000. Carb and And then we would have either some beers or a bottle of wine or both, some beers and a bottle of wine. We'd go and sit up on one of our beds, which were both queens, by the way, and put the TV on and, yeah, polish off dinner while um, have a couple of reds and watching UFC. And I'm not sure if the coma that followed was – because of the the beverages consumed, or whether just the sheer amount of carbs, surely one sitting was just like that. Oh. I'm out, and I think at that stage Mondays were both our day off. Yeah, those well. were the days. They were they were certainly some of the better days. Oh, wild! But you know what? I think something that's going to be more appealing to those listening is talking about sales, and particularly <laughs> your start in sales in car sales, because. Oh, yes. uh, Whenever you would tell somebody, I'm a car salesman, because I'm sure that's exactly how you said it, Yeah. what's the usual reception you get when somebody finds out you're, or actually maybe when even people don't know you're a car salesman, but what's the general rhetoric around car salesmen? Um, well, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening who would know exactly what the general rhetoric is around car salesmen. I used, I used to actually start by saying I'm in the automotive industry. Um, because it sounded a lot more mysterious, I guess. Um, you know, maybe piqued people's interest and and didn't lead with um, car salespeople because probably um, along the journey, they realistically and, and I, I don't I know I've, I've met thousands and thousands of people through the industry and salespeople everywhere. Um, and I tell you what, the majority of them are really good people. Um, it's probably the old, you know, paint everyone with the same brush and so you experience a couple of bad eggs here and there and, and everyone gets that bad rep. Um, like Frankston. Yeah, it's very much a Frankston situation. Um, and and so I guess, yeah, when you when you tell people you're a car salesperson, they can always look too kindly at you um, or, or straight away think, oh, there's something dodgy or sus about this guy. What's, what's wrong with him? So, yeah, I used to use the automotive industry as the term. Um what were we saying? Why are they so maligned? Yeah, what is what? What? Where did the rep come from? Or how, how do they get that bad rep? Well, look, I think like any like any um, any sales type position, I think one of the challenges that people have is trying to um, achieve targets. Which you know, when when you're in a sales role, one of the key things you'll ever have put forward in any sort of performance agreement or, or objectives you could have would be some sort of target that you need to achieve, whether it's weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever it is. And so I think um, having the pressure of trying to deliver to a target, trying to hit a number, um, means that whilst it's a it's a business where you're dealing with people all the time, and you've got to look after people if you want people to buy things from you. Um, it can very easily turn into a game of um, how do I look after people whilst at the same time um, push my own agenda, which is making sure that I get my number. And that kind of pressure, lots of people deal with it differently, but it certainly means that um, you know when you when when you are questioning your own morals, honesty, integrity, those kinds of things, and when you are working for people who are telling you maybe to go down a certain path and try a certain thing that you might not agree with, um, potentially you end up flipping even if people who do have some uh, convictions or values that you hold to, um, you might still end up flipping and doing something that maybe you don't particularly um, look back on fondly. So I, I think that's the kind of thing where people can easily be trapped in 
you know, playing the game of trying to achieve targets and really treating people poorly along the process whether they need to or not. Yeah, because for those, like, maybe unpack that, you know, that target side of things a little bit more. As a car salesman, what does that, that package look like and how is your role really structured behind the scenes? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I think lots of people be familiar with commission-based selling and certainly the industry, the auto industry is um, heavily commission-based. When I say heavily, though, there's probably still a, you know, a base retainer in most car dealerships, most brands across the board is probably going to be anywhere in the range of 40 to 50 grand a year. Now, some do better than that. Um, some might, you know, really try and <laughs> skim a little bit and, and give you less than 40. I don't know if it's even legal anymore to do that. Um, mm. but, but certainly somewhere in that range of 40 or 50 grand, um, maybe 60 if you're working for a prestige brand, and then pretty much the rest is up to you. And so if you want to be, you know, earning good dollars, um, I could probably go and get a job working in Bunnings for 50 grand a year. So, you know, for me to for me to make it as a salesperson in the car industry and to actually make any money and make it worth my time working sometimes six days a week, working long hours, dealing with the pressure, dealing with sales, negotiating with people, um, you, you're probably going to end up um, needing to sell, I don't know, I'd say the targets for most guys would be 10, 12 cars a month, really, to, to make a good living out of it. Um, maybe more if you're working for a volume brand, a Toyota or a Mazda, where, you know, you're not going to make as much money per car. Yeah. It was 15 to 17 when I was at Toyota a month. Yeah, there you go. And and so, look, I think, you know, if I'm earning 100 bucks for every car that I sell um, and I'm earning 50 grand a year, I need to sell, what, two, two cars per week, 200 bucks a week, and 50, 50 weeks, what does that get me to an extra 10 grand a year? Is it? I forget the mass file of that. 100 bucks, yeah, something like that. 200 bucks a week times 50 weeks, yeah, so 10 grand a year. So all of a sudden I'm earning 60 or 70, and that's still not great, and so I want to earn more. And so I think what ends up happening is that the game of either pushing to get more and more cars sold, which therefore you can burn people in the process, you, out the window goes the nice time that you'd have spending the niceties and, and having a chat with someone and, and you know, quickly I move to just, are you going to buy this car or not? Because if you're not going to be wasting your time, I need to get to the next person. Um, and so so that kind of um, attitude can creep in a little bit. And then the second part to it is if I get remunerated further on hitting targets or um, even retaining gross in the vehicle, so let's say the vehicle's $50,000 and I get a special bonus if I get all of the $50,000, if I only sell it for 48, I might get a bit less. If I sell it for 45, I, I get no extra. So I'm trying to make sure I sell it for 50 to get the extra money in my pocket on top of my $100 selling the car. And all of a sudden now I'm starting to play games to try and get someone to spend extra money um, because I want to make sure that I make a bit of extra money in the process. So, you know, I, I think um, probably the in the back end there's this um, low, low retainer that salespeople are on, especially in the car industry, and I know other industries, real estate's the same, really low retainers, and you get a lot of money when you sell stuff. Uh, but the problem with that is what it means is my focus is on selling stuff and not on people. And so it's very easy to lose sight of giving people a great experience. Because mm, the alternative is if you're not selling, it's minimum wage. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's unknown. And, and how do you budget and plan for mortgage, mm. life, kids schooling and things like that if it's an unknown. So I can see how somebody being in this industry for a long time would end up being very just turn and burn. Like yep. you waste my time, that's my kids schooling that's getting, you know, in their mind, that's not justifying, you know, the unethical practices that have happened within the industry. But I can understand where people come from and where some of these attitudes are definitely birthed from. Oh, certainly. And, and look, I think even... Um, you know, because I, I did sell cars for a while, and I think even yourself, you, you're sometimes conflicted between I know what I should do is look after someone, but at the same time, I don't have time to waste yeah. on, on dealing with this person if they're not really going to buy a car, if they're not really that interested, if they're just shopping. And so you even become conflicted yourself because I'm like, 
you know, I've got so much to do. I'm so busy. I've got other people I've got to call. I've got a list of 20 people I've got to call today. I've got three people coming in for test drives. I've got to deliver a card or something which takes an hour and get all the paperwork done. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that'd be an interesting one to give context. Like, what does an average day look like for a car salesman in a in a average busy time? So not quiet to average, but average to busy time. So, you know, anyway. yeah, look, it, it varies a little bit, but probably the, the key tasks you'd be needing to do each day would be um, follow-up calls. So that would be any calls to do with whether it's a new lead that came in, people shop on car sales, they submit a lead and the dealership gets that and then someone has to call you. So there'd be some leads that are coming in that you need to follow up and go, hey, I'm quiet on the car, can I help you? Do you want to have a test drive? Rah, rah, rah. Um, you'll get people that you'd already talked to, maybe they've walked into the dealership before or you've already spoken to them previously and then you've got to call them back and sort of say, you know, where are you at with things? Are you ready to make a decision yet? You know, did you want to come in for a test drive now? We're a month down the track. That's what I think about it. So there's that sort of a lot of phone calls that will go into it. And that can range depending on how efficient you are and how many people you've got to go from five to probably 25 phone calls a day easily just in, in follow-up. Um, then on top of that, you can have your people who are coming in for a test drive. So, um, you know, then you've got to think about things like, is the car ready? Is it washed and clean? So when they come in, it looks nice for them to drive. Is it got How fuel bad in it? is it when that happens? Oh, mate, I've had some horror experiences myself yeah. trying to bypass. Oh, really? That's happened. Yeah. yeah. We rolled up to we rolled up to buy a car when I first left the industry. Um, and uh, we got there. The car was locked. And the guy sort of stumbled out, oh, how are you guys? And said, yeah, we actually inquired with you. We're here for our appointment to test drive the car. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll just go and get the keys. He gets the keys out and the thing was a mess, pigsty. Like and there was, I think, blood or something on the A-pillar, like the, um, the beam that goes down between the, the windscreen and the driver's window. There was some sort of red mark stain. And I just hopped in and looked at it, looked at it and went, sorry, mate, we're out of here. Like I'm not... I can't deal with this. Is a used so, car yes. Yeah, it was it was used cars, but still, like you know, I think at the end of the day, there's there's elements like that where if I'm whether I'm selling a used car or a new car, I still want to make sure the car is going to be presented nicely. So when someone comes to look at it, but that's, now you might have a cleaner working in the dealership, but even if they're the ones who does all that for you, you're still going to liaise with them and make sure that things get ready. To oh, drive. it's parked way out the back. It's buried. It'll be twenty minutes to unbury yeah. the car. And well, it's in the down. middle of the in the middle of the showroom. And you've got to move oh. three cars out of a busy showroom with people nah, in there nah. to get the car out. So those sorts of things and, and test drives, um, you know, and then there's paperwork goes with test drive where they take copies of people's licenses and all those sorts of things. So there's a whole process involved with taking someone on a test drive. Um, so that fills up time. You would have um, selling a car. So let's say someone does test drive the car and decides, yes, I'd like to actually buy that, then there's a bunch of paperwork that has to be done in terms of drawing up contracts and putting people's details into a system and these sorts of things. That all takes time, introducing them to finance managers, aftermarket managers, the rest of it. So I think that side of things, you know, if you go and sell a car, you walk someone through all the way from inquiring about the car through to test driving the car and selling a car could take a few hours potentially, depending on what you've had to do to explain it all to them. Um, and then on top of that, you've probably got things like a boss asking you to clean cars, um, move cars around in the showroom, get other cars off to help other people whose clients are coming in. And then while you're trying to do all of that, um, then you'll have the, the couple walk in who decides that today's the day they'd like to look at a car. Um, and you're running around already with a million things on your plate, but everyone else is too. So you've got to actually stop and start talking to two people who could take another hour of your time just asking the questions about it. So, I think the general day, that's that's pretty much what would make up most people's lives in, in that industry. There's a lot of other things that go into it, but, but they're some of the really time-consuming things that are most involved. Mm, mm. I remember I had one one day in particular where I had a bunch of deliveries in the morning. Wait, for, for, does everyone know that you used to sell Toyotas? I think I've talked about before. that before. I think so. In case, in case you're listening, Brendan used to sell Toyotas for a little while too. Probably yeah. bad advice on my part to join the industry for a little while. <laughs> no, yeah. So, so yeah, selling selling Hiluxes, you know, was really tough. Oh, yeah. It's the, the, the biggest the challenge I ran into with with working for a Toyota is there was four or five other dealerships within a forty minute drive yeah. of us, and when you, I was selling new cars. Um, I think you were more in the uh, used car side, which you've got a unique vehicle. 
So you can genuinely say to the customer, this is the only one in the state with this many kilometers with this spec and this one. And I can say hand on heart that this is the best example of this vehicle in the state. This is one of one. Whereas when you're selling new cars, it's so this Camry 0% finance in white base model. Can you negotiate any of the price on it? <laughs> and people think that there's, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in negotiation space. And, like, and a Camry at 0% finance, it's like, um, oh, and it was on special, you know, $29.990 or something like that. And because of the reputation, you're like, well, actually, there's maybe $200 and that's not including floor mats. And this isn't me being stingy. Like, I'll show you the paperwork of how much the dealership paid for it. <laughs> and people are like, but sure, you can move on that. And I'm like, nah, because then it's like, it, it's a business. <laughs> so you, do you know what's funny? That, that, that actually brings us back to the question you had before around why there's a stigma in car salespeople. That's a perfect example of where that kind of thing has been exploited um, uh, dishonestly. Yeah. So, yeah. for instance, people going, okay, um, the, the boss can fudge the figures and put in, say, you know, if I, if I trade a car in or I buy a car, then we put it through the workshop, they do work to it, we, whatever else, clean it, we do a whole bunch of things, pre-deliver it, yeah. we spend money on the car, they inflate that significantly, and then, honestly enough, they can tell you that the car owes them $47,000 mm. and you're trying to buy it for $47,500 and by the time mm. we put registration on, that's $890 or whatever else, then we're selling it for negative. Now, technically, that's not true because there's a lot of other costs that have gone into the car. They probably bought it for $42,000 and actually, you know, there's other things in there, but it's it's... You know, they're a business and they're trying to make money and they've got to pay, you know, bills, wages, um, electricity, all those sorts of things. So you can see why they do it. But I think that that kind of loophole has been exploited before where I've seen it, where people have gone out and just said, to them, oh, I can show you here, I've swing the screen around, look how much the car owes us. You know, we're selling it for negative, we're in, we're in the red. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not true. It's just mm. blatant, blatantly not true. But it's the games that get played. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's, it's, I don't work in the industry anymore for part of that reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't sold cars in many years. That was over, well over a decade ago. So. It was eye opening and it's, it's, it's a cutthroat industry for sure. I mean, that example I was about to say is, yes, I had a bunch of deliveries in the morning and had an appointment with a customer that was coming back for the third time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that he's coming back for a third time means, all right, if he's not buying it at this stage, it's, it's, it's a waste of time. But he was coming back to be keen. And the appointment was for uh, mid to late afternoon. But he came in when I had like back-to-back deliveries, three in a row. So I had I had zero time. Um, so one of the other guys was able to chat with him. And in the system, the way these things work back at house is I've already built the car that he wants in the system. So it's ready to go. He just needs to decide, print the contract, dot the I's, cross the T's, done. One of the other guys. And, and it would be your sale. And it's my sale. Exactly. My commission, my food on the table. Yep. Um, I've done all the work. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you guess where this story's going? <laughs> yep. And your lunch cut, did you as well? I had my lunch cut. Well, good. And um, the customer came back and and obviously, yeah, the other guy put a, built a brand new contract, same car, built it from scratch, his name, printed off, signed, done. Thank you very much. But here's what really hurt because another part of the, the commission structure is based on customer feedback. Ah, yes. And you get you get a CSI. CSI. Yes. And um, well, guess which salesperson the customer mentioned in their review and was very happy with? <laughs> me. Brendan was blah, 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 and mentioned me throughout his review. But guess who the sale went to? Uh, the other bloke because I was yeah. too busy and tied up. So he, he took it because, again, for him, in his perspective, Hey, I'm one off hitting my target for the month. That's we're talking thousands of dollars difference between me or not. So, sorry, Brennan, you're busy. You do the same thing. I'm like, I wouldn't. You bastard. Well, and you know, is- you know, that's that's really interesting though because I think one of the things that working. I mean, I only sold cars for a total of just over two years. Yeah. Um, and and that was. Oh, gee, I'll tell you what, though. That was back in, so 2008, I was selling Renaults, Saabs, and Hummers. So for anyone who knows what any of those things are, I was selling those, which were already hard enough to sell, in the middle yep. of the global financial crisis. Yeah, so 2008. 
right? Yep. So, and and still, I, I have to say, I was making probably close to eighty thousand dollars a year at the time. So I thought that was that was pretty good money for someone who was very skillful at anything in life. Um, but all that that said, I think you know you go through this you go through this um, process of learning how people operate in that space, having managers put some pressure on you, having them give you words and scripts that you could say. So, well, what about if you say this or call him and mention mm-hmm. this or tell him you've got more people coming in an hour to test drive that exact same vehicle. And so they're feeding you lies to tell. And you go, oh, I don't, I'm not really sort of comfortable doing that. But you realise that if you do and you did, it actually worked. Yeah. So you'd say to someone, oh, hey, actually, we've got another, some people coming soon. Oh, oh, oh okay. Um, oh, well, look, we can be there in half an hour. Can you just, just hold off for us? And then you go, oh, yeah, that, that sort of works. And so now the tricky part is when you get people who, who go, mate, I think sell the car to someone else. I don't care. I'll buy something else. And then you go, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm lying to someone and they've just called me. And then you feel like an idiot. But when when they don't, you start to go, okay, maybe maybe that stuff works. And bit by bit, like any bad habit in life, bit by bit, you let something creep in a little bit like that. And before you know it, you're doing, you know, really dodgy stuff or just blatantly lying to people all the time. And I've met guys out there that are like that, just blatantly lying to people all the time. And it's just part of their nature. And they're lovely people. But yeah, it's just it something a, that they've a had to do. Path. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sorry, mate. No, it's only about this much. I've only got this much room and I can take this much off the deal. So it is what it is, hand on heart. This is the best that I can do for you. When really, two days ago, he sold a car for five grand less than what he's actually telling you. Exactly. Um, but he's done it so well practiced. Mm-hmm. That lie is so well oiled that it just slips right off the tongue and it's as easy exactly. as anything. And the worst part is it it, it does work. And because everybody in the industry is doing it, yes, you can shop around to five other Toyotas and you're going to run into the exact same story unless you yeah. run to one that's going for really going for volume yeah. and go, fine, we'll undercut it and we'll sell it at a negative just to get the overall target for the month. And then... Well, and that's and that's the other pressure with car sales, car sales too is that not a lot of people out there only have one car that they like. Um, it's it's changed a lot lately. Some of the stats I had last heard it was that people are only ever visiting now maybe one or two dealerships um, before they make a purchase. But it used to be even just five or ten years ago that people were visiting three or four dealerships. They were looking and considering two or three different brands. And so when when there's different brands on the table, different dealerships involved, and different cars that someone might choose from with different options and budget ranges. All of a sudden, it starts getting a bit cutthroat, and mm-hmm. you know the, the Australian marketplace is saturated. There's something like sixty brands servicing uh, one million cars a year market. So sixty um, brands. Yeah, so so the Australian car market is about one one point one million cars a year. That's many get sold, and of those, half of them are fleet deals. So a lot of it's not really um, as controllable for your average car sales guy. I'm sure, there's yeah. some fleet managers and, and head offices that get involved in that sort of stuff. But for your average car sales guy, they're not really going to have that kind of... So when you're talking about 1.1 million cars versus 60 brands, to put it into perspective, the American... Uh, we've got 20, what, 7 million people in the country. Yeah, the American market is has 33 or 4 brands servicing 300 million people. So you can just see that the sheer um, size and scale of somewhere like states where there's not as many brands to choose from. So therefore, it's more likely every brand's going to get a slice of the pie, whereas here it's saturated. So every brand's clawing, every dealership's clawing, and so even the maybe, successful ones, even the successful ones, and so even even with all of that going on in the background, here's you know poor Nathan trying to sell a, a car, going, oh, I've got so much pressure on me, and it's not just my boss. He's telling me the dealer principal. He's telling mm-hmm. he's telling me that. You know, the brands, you know, whoever it is that you're working for is, you know, pushing us to do is we've got to get sales, we've got to get numbers. You know, someone's going to lose their job if we don't because we had a bad month last month and whatever. It's And so all the pressure builds up and you're like, gee, now the customer's telling me he wants to go down the road. What can I do to get him to stay here? Do I have to lie? I lie. What do I need to say? And so it's all, it's all that kind of pressure. It's that ecosystem. Mm. Mm. Yep. yep. And so, so, yeah, go for it. 
Well, I was just going to say that the, the flip side to that is because I, I guess it's all sounding very negative. I love the industry. I was in it, you know, for solid cars for a couple of years, but I was in the automotive industry for another 10 years after that. Um, and I, I think when you see it done well, a lot of the people who I've seen long-term do really well and make good money, and I'm talking I'm talking sales guides that are making, you know, $120,000, $150,000 a year selling cars, um, I've heard of people making close to 200. I don't know how true that is. Um, yeah. And I've met guys that are, that are making 140, 150. And the most powerful thing they did was build really good relationships with people. And they would build really loyal customer bases. I had a guy I worked with when I was selling Audis, um, Carlo. I don't know if Carlo will ever be listening to Carlo. Hi, if you're listening. Um, he, he was... He had moved to Audi from Alfa Romeo, right? Now, anyone who knows anything about Alfa Romeo, the customers are quite loyal. Um, the cars aren't particularly well-known for reliability, um, but the, their customers are loyal. It's kind of like, the, you know, I own it, and even if it's bad, I'm going I'm to stick by it, the fact that it's so great. And that's kind of, you know, the, the stigma that's around um, Alfa Romeo buyers. And so um, he moved across from Alfa Romeo and he would have customers coming in to Audi to spend more money buying an Audi from him, just because of him, just because he sold them three Alfa Romeos over the years and then he's moved to Audi, so now I go to Carlo and he sells me an Audi instead. And so when you, when you see it done really well, um, you go, oh, okay, maybe, maybe there is scope for people to do, to make a career and a living in the industry and have a good, loyal base of customers who come back. And it's not just about that customer buying multiple cars. Their partner, their kids need a car for their first car, then their kids grow up using you, their friends, their work colleagues. And quite quickly, if you're the guy, if you're the car person for them, you're the trusted advisor, well, then they're going to keep coming back to you. They're going to send people to you, and it actually becomes easy. Yeah, because and this, is, this is the line that we got fed to always, you know, send through to people is it's the second most expensive purchase you'll ever make mm-hmm. first is your house and i'd argue i'd argue that most people who are struggling to get into the housing market now would probably be the most expensive thing they ever buy yeah yeah ex- exactly right so yeah exactly especially if you're renting and you're going houses are too expensive but hey mm-hmm. i can have a brand new ranger raptor oh yeah i'm a third year apprentice get me into that 13 <laughs> percent interest <laughs> done living with mum and dad yeah. I've got that disposable income. Beauty. No yeah. worries. Spend my whole three hundred dollars a week on it. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, and but if you do it well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. How do you think? And this is a, a slight tangent. We don't have to touch on it too long. There's a few brands like Hyundai is probably a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, not Hyundai, Honda. Sorry, Honda, Honda. Yeah. are switching to uh, pretty much this fixed price model. Mm-hmm. I know Tesla kind of broke the mold with that one. We just, you know, this is how much the car costs. There's no negotiating. And it's, you've got a service advisor that just goes through the technicalities of the car, but the car is the car. Do you think that's going to, as we've touched on earlier, that that sort of commission-based structure by its very nature will lead to some unethical practices because when push comes to shove, you know, but when the price is fixed, does that fix part of this problem we've been discussing uh, in that industry? I really or do you think it just creates more hidden no, no, I really hope so. I think, I think probably like anything, the pioneers are going to suffer a little bit. I think it's going to be the hardest on the people who go early. And and it's funny you say that because the brand I was working for previous to this um, new job's just gone through that themselves. Um, and so they've they've gone through a process of moving um, towards what what you would call in the industry agency model, where essentially instead of each dealership being owned by someone, almost like a sort of like a franchise um, in, instead of being owned by someone and they use the brand affiliation but they own all the property and they own the cars and they um, what happens is the brand themselves own all of the vehicles not the property but they own all of the vehicles and so instead of when Nathan goes in to buy his car he's buying the car from XYZ dealership now Nathan goes in to buy the car and XYZ dealership just facilitates that sale with that particular uh, brand so let's say it was holding because they're not in the industry anymore. They're not here anymore, so we can pick on them. Um, Holden, I buy, Nathan buys from Holden Australia, not from the dealership. The dealership just helps facilitate the sale. 
Because how many people do you think actually knew back in the day, prior to this being a thing, that when you are going into a Holden dealership, you're not buying from Holden, you're buying from, you know, say, Joe Blow's Holden. Mm-hmm. It's actually Joe Blow owns the dealership. He's the dealer principal. Yeah. Yeah. And that dealership has to purchase those vehicles from Holden and then they hold them on their yard, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Paying, and inter- paying interest on them. And they're paying interest on these vehicles until mm-hmm. they move them, which is why those vehicles have been sitting on the lot for a long time is costing Joe Blow, not Holden, money. Is Those cars are already bought for by Joe Blow and he's now employing other people to move those cars at a profit for yes. him. Yes. But now what you're saying is the industry is turning into where Joe Blow owns the property, the venue, and Holden now owns the cars and they give Joe Blow money whenever he sells a car. Exactly. So he, so, and, and so, well, actually it's funny because that is, exacerbates the, the point you're talking about is the discussion before and how much pressure there is to achieve targets. You can only imagine as well that if you're what we call a dealer principal or someone who owns uh, the business, and or runs the business, if if you've got money invested in holding millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of stock in your yard, you need people to sell that. And so you better believe there's going to be pressure that you guys move this metal because I can't afford to just have it sitting here, you know, paying interest on it and, and not getting any money for it. Owning a, you know, a Mercedes dealership or something like that, you got a couple of AMGs sitting on that, that mm-hmm. lot. You, yep. Yep. You want yep. people to be aggressive to move them on and you'll pay them to be aggressive. Exactly. Well, it's a bit like, I mean, if anyone, if anyone's into property investing, it's a little bit like having an investment property that you don't have rented. Yeah, yeah you might be able to get away with it for a while, actually. but long term, you can't have the thing just sitting there not being rented. I need to get the thing rented. Just get anyone in there and get them to pay whatever it is per week, but just get someone in there and rent the thing. Do you reckon that's actually a pretty good analogy for people when they're next going to buy a car from a dealership? to look at it in that model, that when you're walking into a dealership and you're looking at a car, think of it as a rental property that has nobody renting it out. That's their appetite as a dealership is they want to, they, it's been sitting here for six months, can't move it because it's a bloody gold-coloured Camry top of the range <laughs> worth $45,000 and nobody wants to pay $45,000 for a Camry. Can you just move the bloody thing? 100%. Well, it, it depends how you want to approach a discussion because I guess the two ways you can go about it is what it, what's the dealership doing and and mm. what, what are their motivations? But the other part is if you're wanting to give advice to people out there who are buying a car um, because that's, that's a different story altogether. But I, what I would say is you can start to see just by the discussion we've had that if the pressure is on the dealership to sell the car because they need to be moving in order to make money, then you probably have some power or leverage, right? So negotiation 101. Um, if, if there's pressure on them to do something, then you have the leverage because there's no pressure on you to buy the car from them. So, um, but what ends up happening in a lot of car dealerships is that they know that, right? We know that the, the customer has the power. So what we're trying to do is flip the coin so that instead now, how do I get the power? How do I get something over the customer? How do I make them make a decision? Yeah, so you hear things like, I think so if you've ever bought a car, oh, look, we might be able to do that price. For me to get that price across the line, I need to be able to take a credit card deposit from you today. All right? So now I get some power in, in the equation because I've got none. So unless I can get you to commit and give me a credit card deposit and make sure that you sign the contract before I even take it in the boss to get that approved that he's going to give the car away for that much, and, and so there's these sort of power games that happen. But, yes, you have a lot of power as a buyer. We used to get feedback and rated based on the number of people that came in for that appointment or walked in and didn't, like, commit on the day. And that was that was a thing. And then the, the attitude from the sales manager was buy or die. They're your two options. Are they dead? No. Have they bought? No. Well, keep going. Yep. Keep trying. Yep. Keep hassling until they buy or they die. Yeah. Until they've either told me they bought from somewhere else or leave me to death alone. Or my first two days on the job at Toyota was um definitely a wait, let me guess time. before you say it, I can nearly guess what they would have made you do. Did they give you a list of ex-customers or service customers and you had to call through the list of people and try and get people to come in and buy cars? Spot on. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so spot on. What I want induction to new cars. So it was two days. So the list that I had was 200 people deep. Okay. And it was a list of people, not service customers and not existing previous customers. There were people that were going to buy and then decided not to buy. <laughs> so even worse, people that have bought oh, elsewhere yeah. for some reason or another. I'm calling customers like, yeah, we got there for delivery and it was a red car and we ordered a white car. So we walked away because it wasn't the car that we paid for. And I'm like, oh. 200 people in two days. Oh, it was um, it was soul crushing. And- there you go. So that's you want to talk about the price of entry to the car industry. <laughs> Anyone's thinking about getting into it, just be aware that your first probably few weeks is going to be a heck of a lot of calls. Absolutely. Just to break you, just because, again, you know, there is this sort of like picking up the phone, making the call, being very forward, ask, popping the question, going, mm-hmm. so interested in buying today? Yep. Surprisingly hard and surprisingly few people can do it. It's awkward. It's awkward because, yeah. and like, it seems logical. It is what our sales manager always says. It's like, well, they've walked in for a reason. They yes. clearly want to buy something. So why is it so hard to go, so would you like to buy the car today? Yep. But it's awkward because people get awkward. They go, oh, no. It's like, you've been here for three hours, been on a, you know, 20-minute <laughs> test drive. You don't want to buy. Said how much you liked it. You're sitting there for an hour going, "This is so comfortable." You paired your phone up. You were calling your mum, going, <laughs> "We're in a car showroom, looking at this new car. It's beautiful. We really like it." And you're still not sure whether you're ready to decide. Oh, okay. And they go elsewhere. The other one that we used to get rated on, it was like a, a board and a percentage, was our burn rate. So oh. we'd get, we'd get, you know, everyone gets X number of leads through. Mm-hmm. Guy's been there long. This gets cream of the crop and obviously his numbers are great then everybody else gets a burn rate and that's calculated off number of leads you get versus number of leads you convert and he's like if you can convert one out of three you're good as gold but if you're one out of five one out of ten mate i'm going to be hesitant giving you leads and that's the sort of pressure that you put on is like these leads are gold each lead is worth x number of dollars da 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 well, and that's another. Do you want to know another thing that I don't know many people would understand? Car dealerships pay car sales yeah. for leads. They pay. I, I think I don't know what it is now. It's probably around forty-five dollars per lead. Yeah. So when you're the person sitting in a car sales, sending off fifty different leads to a million different people privately, that's not the case. But for dealerships, they get charged per lead. Yeah. So. You can imagine too when dealerships are getting a bunch of leads sent through and they're paying literally $45 every time a lead comes through. They want to make sure the sales guy's doing something. You're better. And the sales manager, I don't know if this is the case in your side, but definitely for us, every call is recorded. And he would listen back on all of our calls of all of our leads. So we'd go, oh, how'd you go with um, Jane wanting the white Yaris? And I'd be like, look, Turns out she actually clicked on it by accident. She wants a Nissan Leaf. She thought it was. She thought we were Nissan. And he goes, "Yeah, all right." And leads you to it because he's listened to the call and he knows you're not telling a porky pie. Yeah. But if you go, "Oh yeah, now nah, she's keen. Got an appointment because appointments are another big thing." Yeah, she's got an appointment yeah. for this Saturday. We're all good. Like, really? What time's that appointment, mate? Like, oh, I haven't locked it in yet. He's like. Are you going to lock it in? Because he's listening in on your calls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know that his $45 is being made the most of. Exactly, yeah. And yeah, on top of that, you're working weekends and all that sort of stuff as well. It's um, Yeah, and look, I think the industry's changed a lot over the last, even just the last decade too. Yeah. You know, it used to be very much, you would work five days a week, however... And, and that would usually be for a Saturday, especially here in Victoria. So I know, I know it's a bit different around um, other states, but definitely. Because oh, New South Wales operate on Sundays, don't they? They do, yeah. Four bars. Um, but, but so definitely here in Victoria was you would work a Saturday and so you would have two days off during the week. Now, not consecutively necessarily either. So you would get your Sunday off, but whether you would get Mondays the next day, probably not because a lot of the time you've had a very busy Saturday there's a lot of things that have happened on the course of a Saturday and you need to get in on the Monday and start mm. sorting everything out, sort paperwork out, send contracts to people, whatever else needs to happen. So it's very unlikely that you would get a Monday off in two days in a row. 
And so what you would do is you'd take a Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday on rotation with whoever else was off. So you get two split days over the course of a week. And then on top of that, you take your day off, but really only you take a day off if you can afford to take a day off. And when I mean by afford to, it means you're hitting your target, life's going well for you, you've got enough leads that are going to get you to your end of month target, um, you, you're confident that the delivery that you have scheduled isn't going to call in that day at the last minute and decide they want to come in and pick up their car that day and you're going to have to go in on your day off to do the delivery anyway so you might Work. Well, because well, do you want old do you want Ray to do your delivery? Oh no! And then you know, because if he stuffs up the delivery and is really terrible with your customer, yeah. you get, you get your feedback. bonus based yeah. on customer feedback. So he cooks it, you pay. But then at the same time, um, Ray owes you because last time he was on a day off. And his customer called in and you did a delivery on his behalf. So now he kind of owes you. So And he got a 10 out of 10 for customer satisfaction. So yeah. you're welcome, yeah. Ray. But that's but that's the thing. So I think, you know, on top of that, it's sick days. Like Not a thing. It, it used to be that, you know, pretty much unless you were um, pretty much completely incapacitated of some description, like a, a cold is not an excuse not to be at work. In that industry, again, depends who you work for. But back in the day, it was certainly you just push through anything. So, and if you did take a sick day because you were sick, that kind of was assumed that that was then your day off the week. Oh, 100%. What do you mean? You want a day off as well, but you had a sick not, day. Like, why you want three day days off? off? You want three days off in a week? Do you not want to eat? And then it's like, well, are you hitting your target? Oh, no, I still, you know, my target's 12. Um, I'm only on eight and there's like a week to go. Well, can you really afford to have a day off? Do you, and do you so really there's a lot of this job. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Like now, it's changed a bit um, over the last decade. I know certainly now it's a lot more focused on five day weeks. Um, you know, a bit bit more work life balance. I shouldn't say it's really well work life balance, but there's certainly um, you know what's crept into a lot of organisations has crept into the automotive industry, and they've realised that we can't just burn people. We need to have you know. We need to have people who are well looked after, um, you know, mentally healthy, as well as the rest of it. And so, you know, I think things have shifted. But yeah, you know, I, I, it was definitely um, maybe not as kind when I first started out. <laughs> no, yeah. and, and and definitely not my experience as as well within it. It was definitely a uh, eye opening. I was there for like nine, ten months, and it was. Um, well, it was definitely moments where you're like, okay, this is good. It's humming, it's working, but it's the it's relentless. It's every weekend and it never stops. It's, and if it's not end of the month, it's beginning of the month and you're getting slammed for last month and what should have been and recalls and, you know, you're talking to someone the other day that's in the industry, all the um, vehicle delays because of the chip shortage. Guess what? Yep. That 15 car a month target's still there. Yep. But guess what? They can't. You're still getting paid commission, but you've got nothing to sell. But you've got nothing to sell. So they're living on minimum wage, effectively, um, because there's no cars to deliver. Even if they get a sale over the line, you get paid on delivery. So if someone comes in and puts a deposit down and the car's 10 months away, like the new Land Cruiser or something like that, you've got a hope they still want to buy in 10 months. You get paid in 10 10 months, all your work, that's when the money comes in. Like... It is. It is such a bizarre. Well, it's, industry. it's a little bit the same as. I mean, I've listened to a, a number of your podcasts now. Where um, oh shucks. And by no, but by the way, mate, like well done on this. I think it's it's. I really like this idea for two reasons. Like, firstly, just the sheer entertainment value for me. I love listening to what other people do, and I found it fascinating just to listen to how people make money, like how, how they make money, how to live. You know, what do they do with their lives, their job and their work and that sort of So I found that really interesting. But um, I also, like, I, I really like the concept because I wish that I had something like this myself when I was in year 12 or even year 10 when you had to start making decisions about this to go, what do I want to do with my life? What are some of the options out there? No one told me that. The, the careers counsellor didn't do anything like this with us, certainly didn't go into any details. <laughs> Right, and that's why, like, even a couple of times, like, for a few of the guests, I know it's probably, like, you know, a bit of a cliche I use now, but I don't care because it's such the premise of the podcast. It's like, 
you know, Jess Wilson, for example, yes. who we both yeah. know. Like, I just knew I was going to be a muso. This is it. I'm like, I can't imagine a careers counsellor going, be a muso. That's a good yeah. life decision. Yeah, yeah no way. Or another one, <laughs> dressmaker. Like, you should be a dressmaker. Like, if you're, imagine it's a private school and you're paying squillions of dollars to send your kid to a private school and the careers counsellor says, you should be a dressmaker. Yeah. Like, you'd be living or as I'm a gonna, parent. <laughs> I just recently listened to one with, um, is it Matt and Holly? I can't remember their Matt names. Matt and Holly, yeah, doing the Overland Travellers. Yep. Yeah, Overland Travellers. Um, and can you imagine Legends. a careers counsellor back even 10 years ago going, what you should do is you should think about just making videos and putting them on the internet and you might make a living that way. Yeah. yeah that's, wait, any other income? Oh, bits and pieces, but really just make videos about an old land cruiser and travel Australia. But but the, the the point of the point of me coming back to your your podcast was to say there's examples all the way through where other people go through that anyway, like um, you know Kim and her photography, where she'll yeah. book in, uh, you know she'll book in a session for you know maybe in a year's time for a wedding. You've got to do a lot of work to get that liaising back and forth, do all this work, but then. You don't get it. You don't. You don't get paid for a year. Yeah, so it's all nice to have that in the future, but not seeing yeah, it Yeah, I like that. I like that point, and that's um, I think that's something that we don't get taught at school. Or actually, no, what we get all right. Thinking on yeah. the run right here is we, I guess, the default setting for career or job or. What you do once you finish university, if you go to university and it's, it's your, your week-to-week paycheck, well, it's just that. It's your week-to-week paycheck. Or maybe you're a poor soul. It gets monthly. Hey, I got paid monthly for years. I still get paid I monthly. I still get paid monthly. If you're a young person listening to this and getting paid monthly, learn to budget. Yep. Don't have a credit card if you can avoid it and just be disciplined. It's the Amen. best way to get through it. <laughs> That is the most like best advice I could ever give on this. We podcast. should do it. We should do a whole podcast just on financial advice for, for young people. For you, hundred oh, percent. Yeah, don't be the dickhead buying the Ford Raptor Ranger at thirteen percent interest, living with your mum and dad just because you got the disposable income. Yes. Save for a house, mate. <laughs> Anyways, I feel like the default is yeah, it's a job with a paycheck and it's and it's consistent week on week on week. But the the exceptions to the rule have been these ones that I've had on the podcast where it is. The work you put in now may only literally pay off and metaphorically pay mm-hmm. off a year down the track. And that's what, you know, your, your Kims and your Jesses, especially in their industry, have run into with COVID and the lockdowns and everything like that, is it's put all of that back and then consolidated it into an un, um, unsustainable time frame. You know, there's only so many gigs you can do in a day yeah. type thing. Yeah. Um, but mate, I'd, I'd argue that's I'd argue that's still the same principle, you know. Mm. And for anyone younger out there listening who's just getting into the workforce, I would argue it's the same sort of principle that there's an element that that people are too everyone's too worried about getting rich quick these days. Oh. Everything's about instant instant fame, instant fortune. How do I make you know three billion dollars on Bitcoin? Like, <laughs> what what can so I do? NFTs now. That's the thing. So, but, but everyone's like, what can I do to just get rich quick? And no one actually wants to do the hard work, you know, yeah. be diligent enough to sit there and wait it out and learn and develop and grow and invest and invest and invest time until stuff ha- pays off. You might get out of university and think that you're worth $90,000 a year, but I'll tell you right now, the majority of people coming out of university are, and I've experienced some really good ones, and they're still not worth $90,000 a year. In fact... In the scheme of things, when you've worked with really good operators at, at management levels in companies, someone coming out of university doesn't really matter, you know, a lot of the time. And and that's really harsh to hear that. But what it means is when I'm coming out of university, what I should probably be doing instead is going, how do I get in somewhere and learn and bide my time and invest and show people that I've got the skills and the talent and the ability that over time will lead to more money? And it's a bit the same. You know, I invest some time now to talk to a customer, even though I'm not going to go to charge them money, even though I'm going to make any money, but I invest the time now, I build some relationship, and in the future, it's going to pay off for me. Yeah, absolutely. And just on that university note, that's something universities are aware of. From when I was working at Swinburne two yeah. years, sorry, should I mention the university's name? Ah, it's fine, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, they're aware of the fact that a lot of kids that are graduating and going into the workforce 
are going in with a degree but not equipped to work yes. within a workforce. This yeah. isn't just Swinburne. This is every university right now is facing the exact same problem. They're really good at teaching kids how to get a degree, but actually training that workforce placement thing. And I think it's actually Swinburne that's dedicated that by a certain year, every student that goes through is going to have some sort of workforce or workplace placement during their degree. Yeah. Because I, it's such I an issue. It's absolutely critical. And I've, and I've seen it from people that I've worked with previously where you know, um, graduate students, IBL students and the like, and it's eye-opening for them because they can't even construct an email properly in a professional manner or they can't sit in a meeting and present something, you know, that's that's pretty straightforward, but it's it's too intimidating. Or take feedback on board, yeah. rejig it and reflect it back on you without going, what? It's like, no, 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 I wasn't having a go at you. I'm trying to help you be better because what you're doing is not going to make us money or is going to cost us a lawsuit or to lose a business, or lose a customer, da, 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 da. you know, you can't, you know, write an email in that way. You can't say that. Like, these sort of things, it's not how you operate, and it's taken personally, and it's like, oh, buddy. Exactly, and it's a really harsh way to learn because I guess if you're not prepared for that, you, you get thrown in thinking everything's going to be great. Look how much value I'm going to add to this place with all my knowledge. Yeah. Then you get in there and you go, oh, holy crap, I don't need my knowledge. So I've got people who are way more knowledgeable than me. Um Plus, I don't even have an experience. You, you know, I, I think what it is, I use this analogy or this um, say, is that it's one thing to have knowledge, but it's another thing to have wisdom. Mm. And so, and, and the difference between that is experience, right? It's, it's going, I've got experience oh my taking my knowledge and turning it into something that's practical, practical and works because I've got the experience to be able to do something properly with my knowledge, and that's what wisdom is. And that's really what you're aiming to do throughout your career is develop, yeah, okay, I've got knowledge, I need knowledge, but I actually also need experience. I, to be totally honest with you, I couldn't care less whether someone's going to university or not. What I want to know is can they learn something, learn how to do something and do it well, but do they have that appetite to want to develop it, to, to gain some experience and become good at doing that? I don't care if you've got a degree and you know all about it or not. If you've got an appetite to learn, you can learn it. And as long as you're ready to sit there and do some work and, and put in some effort, you'll get the experience and you'll be you'll be killing it in years to come. So that I mean, I think that's the the maybe what's not talked about in university, certainly not talked about in high school, because all the pressure is go to university, get your degree. If you don't get a degree, you're gonna be useless, you're not gonna get anywhere, you're not gonna make any money. No one will ever want you in a job. And I think that's yeah, incorrect fallacy, and I don't think we should be teaching that. that but. Yeah, I, I love that knowledge is the the difference between knowledge and experience sorry knowledge knowledge and wisdom. wisdom is experience and that's that thing and i feel for these kids that have been in lockdown for the last two years and not been able to get that experience and their experience have, has been or have had to do it virtually which is which is not reality it's not, that's not easy for me Getting back, getting used to, and I've even found it with my job, going back in front of customers and and all that, and back on the road and, and talking to people face to face is like that took readjustment yeah. for me, yeah. and I can do that in my sleep underwater upside down. Yes. Exactly. Let alone how these kids brand new to the workforce are going to have to reintegrate back into that, mm-hmm. not reintegrate, integrate for the first time. It's um, it's it's going to be tough. But uh, the good thing is they're at a head start in terms of at least I guess the the digital savviness of um, you, the workplace. You're on news. <laughs> because, because, you know, there's a lot of people the opposite who have just absolutely battled yeah. to, you know, learn how to work from home and be effective. They've always been in an office. They've always had someone looking over their shoulder. And now I'm at home and I don't, I, I, you know, I might be 50 years old. I don't know how to look after myself, like how to, how to be productive. I don't know how to be efficient at home because I've got distractions and, I, I, don't, I can't do some of the things I usually do because I'm not in the office, so I just waste time and flounder. And a lot of people have struggled with it. Yeah. Yeah. And we've just churned through an hour like nothing else. Oh. I guess I shouldn't be shocked. I was hoping that we'd get to, like, your now role, which is training, but I, I guess we just got nostalgic about car sales <laughs> and what a dumpster fire. Hey, we can, we can talk training if you've got time for it. I don't know if anyone wants uh, to listen to Let's it. save that for a 2.0 podcast. Keep that up the sleeve, I reckon. Um, what advice would you give somebody if they're going to buy a car now based on your time in the industry? 
Well, can I suggest to you that if you're going to buy a car now, it's a really tough time to be buying a car. Um, with, with what, and you mentioned it earlier, but there's chip shortages around the world, like electrical chips. Um, and so if you've found that there's shortages of any electrical appliances at all that you've wanted, it's all for the same reason. And cars are no different. Um, so it's a really tough time to be buying a car because there's not a lot of stock of new cars around. Um, so because there's not a lot of stock, now finally dealers have some power because if they've got the one that's in the country or they've got the only one in blue and that's the one you want, then it's kind of take it or leave it and you might pay full price, um, which you know, you've usually been able to go and do some negotiation. So I would, I would say it's a tough time to be buying a new car. Um, equally tough to be buying a used car right now because there's no stock of new cars. For the first time ever, the used car market has been increasing. Used car prices have been increasing in value. So usually they decrease and the last couple of years they've been increasing. So you're probably paying more now for a used car um, than, you, than you probably would you know, without COVID situation. So if you're going to, if you really need to buy a car right now, um, I'd probably suggest to you, um, if you've got the money, it may well be worth trying to get a new car, like if you can. Um, and I'm not talking to you know, first year um, out of uni students or apprentices or the like, don't go and buy a new car, just keep driving the thing you've got until you've got enough money to buy something properly. But if, if you're going to buy a new car or look at a car, consider a new one. Maybe it's maybe you have to stretch a little bit, but I think um, in the scheme of things, if you can get a car and get it for a, a decent enough price, you're probably going to be better off than overspending on some very expensive used cars um, it's rover which, inflated. which means as soon as there's stock back of new cars, no one's going to want those used cars anymore and your used car price is going to plummet. So I would say it's now more than ever is probably a safer bet buying a new car in terms of later term value or what mm-hmm. we call residual value of your car in the future. However, if you can't afford that and you're looking at used cars, um, I, I think just be aware of that that's what's going on at the moment in the market. And so probably there's people and there was pretty ridiculous ideas of what they can get from their second car. Um, I would always advise everyone to ask for a discount. Not everyone's good at that, not everyone likes it, and it's a bit confronting. Um, in usual circumstances, I would say it's probably dang it. Lost you. I'm just going to hang here until it's working again. Hey, and you're back. It dropped out. I don't know what happened. Ah, Where did you lose me? You were just saying um, about if you're buying, if you are going to buy used, I'd advise you to. Oh, well, if you are going to buy a used car because you can't afford a new one, um, I think... Just be aware that that's what's going on in the marketplace mm. at the moment. It's people wanting, you know, some pretty hefty prices for cars that probably don't deserve that. So, so shop around, make sure you get one that you actually want. Uh, make sure you look for one, you know, whether it's lower case, good service history, or those sorts of things that you're confident, you know, is worth paying a bit above maybe what market rates would usually be. Um, and, and ask for a discount. Um, it's, it's probably, it's a really super rough, rule of thumb, but I would usually suggest that you would be targeting 5% discount. Um, you know, so if I'm buying a $50,000 car, I would expect to, to maybe get two two $2,500 off it, maybe. Um, you know, if I'm buying a $20,000 car, sure, they might do a grant. Maybe they won't even do a grant. I don't know. But, but that's probably a good rule of thumb to, to try and aim to get a bit of a discount. Now, it might be hard in the used car market at the moment. Might even be harder with the new car market, but still ask. So certainly, people interested in doing deals on cars. Um, and the other piece of advice is I know it's, it sounds really cliche, but end of year, end of financial year, um, really good time to buy cars. And end of the month, any end of month is a really good time to buy a car. Here's, here's my one piece of really strong advice when you're making an offer on a car have a deposit ready to go. Whether it's a credit card that you're paying a deposit, five hundred bucks, thousand bucks, whatever it is, or some cash, 
have money ready to put a deposit on the car because if you like the car, the strongest negotiation tool is, okay, I will buy it if you can do it for this price and I'll give you my deposit today or give you my credit card and you can take a deposit today. And that usually gets the car sales guys pretty excited because they know they're on to a deal. So it would be my best advice if you're trying to buy one. Nice. Speaking of advice, if you were to go back to Nath getting into the car industry, what would be the advice you'd give yourself going into it? Um, I, I, I don't know that I would change a lot. I would mm. probably say something along the lines of enjoy the ride mm. and, and, and learn what you can while you're there because I think it's really interesting that um, whilst it was a little bit uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me, especially with my sort of upbringing background, it's a little bit uncomfortable being put in that sort of place where you had to be a bit dishonest and, you know, maybe challenge your integrity. Um, I learned a lot whilst being in there, not just about myself but about you know, the industry and how it works and just people in general, how people are and how they operate and why they operate that way and what drives them. And So I think a lot of that has actually stood me in really good stead, you know, today to be doing the kinds of things that are doing the learning development space where, you can actually help people to be better at what they do because you yeah. spend time learning about them and understanding them. So I think for me it would be, you know, the advice would be, you know, do do what you know is the right thing, um, but, but certainly enjoy the ride and, and learn while you're there because I, I picked up a lot of things while I was there that, you know, yeah, have, have um, stayed with me till now and are still, in the, you know, even just things like negotiation. Um, I'd done a lot of negotiation before, but I tell you what, after spending a couple of years in the car industry, negotiating with people every day, negotiating over hundred dollars here, thousand dollars there, negotiating on you know hundred thousand dollar cars and the like, um, you, you get pretty comfortable talking about money and talk, and negotiating with people, and, and just expecting that when we go into a situation, we're going to have a negotiation. That's okay. I'm comfortable with that. That alone is a skill that can be very hard to develop in most careers unless you do something like that. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot you could learn and I probably would be telling myself, hey, um, pick up as many skills as you can on the way. Love it. That's awesome. That's really good advice. Really appreciate it. Good luck to anyone out there buying cars. Have fun. <laughs> good luck. Hopefully this helps. <laughs> and everybody listening, thank you very much for listening to the Price of Entry podcast. This is us for the day. Thank you, Nath. You're not going to call me a car salesman, are you? You're not going to put up as oh. I speak to Nathan Robson, car salesperson. No, I can't do that, can I? Because you're technically not anymore. I've been for years. But then the title at, like, of what you do now, is, <laughs> like, we, don't, we didn't actually get to it because it's been over an hour. And <laughs> my podcast thing doesn't let me upload anything that goes for much longer. <laughs> Truth be told, everybody, a bit of behind oh, the scenes, why the episodes are the length they are, is... Um, I run into pro problems when the episodes run longer. File size. The file size is too big uh, and I have to compress, and even if it's just audio, there's been a few where I've had to compress it right down mm. and it's still been too big and then the audio quality sucks. Um, so, you know, it's the real reason why it's an hour. It's the price of entry, it's, mate. It's the price of entry to the podcast. But thanks for listening, everybody. That's been us for this week. Stay tuned after this, though, for a sneak peek at next week's episode. You've been great. See you next time. What, what available opportunities there are under accounting? So you've got consulting, but even mm -hmm. within consulting, there's many, many different services and lines that you could work under. And then the main one is auditing as well. And then you've got one of the newer ones is climate change sustainability and you got tax as well or you got uh, fraud, fraud accounting investigation. Um, so, yeah, so in audit, um, for anyone that's watched the movie, the accountant, it's it's similar to, it's exactly what he does, goes in, looks at it's the- Ben Affleck, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Great just, movie. We just don't do- The shooting part. 80% of the action tax- activities in that movie but essentially yeah every every company in australia who's at least all public companies or if you're a private that's i think it's greater than two or ten million dollars in turnover needs to be audited 